Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Buddy, Senior Research Scholar in the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology in Chicago. If you haven't been paying attention to events in the Philippines lately, you're overlooking one of the most ruthless campaigns against the poor and marginalized peoples anywhere in the world. Elected in 2016, the President of the Philippines has launched a so-called War on Drugs that involves the premeditated murder of suspected drug users and addicts across the country, murders carried out by police, security forces, and private gunmen. With nearly 20,000 killed so far, I spoke with Father Amado Picardo, a Filipino priest and veteran human rights leader who has been threatened with death by allies of the president. As part of DePaul University's Corporal Works of Mercy series, Father Amato spoke on burying the dead in the midst of massive extrajudicial murder. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Now, you're at DePaul University to speak on, as part of a series on the Corporal Works of Mercy, sponsored by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology. Um, you're, you're talking tonight on events in the Philippines um, of great concern to people around the world. For those among our listeners who haven't heard about recent developments in the Philippines, what's been happening? Uh, it's almost impossible to believe what's going on uh, unless one's been following the news from that part of the world. Well, for the almost the last two years, you know, since the start of the Duterte administration, there's been almost 20,000 killed you know, in these extrajudicial killings in the war on drugs. So extrajudicial killings? Yep. Tied ostensibly to the war on drugs? Yeah, carried out by police and death squads that are composed of police and their civilian assets. And President Duterte was elected in 2016, is that correct? Yes, May 2016. And before that, he had been mayor of a major city in, Min in Min Mindanao, correct? In Davao City, yeah. Okay. What was his uh, administration like there before he became president? Well, the administration was actually characterized by extrajudicial killings. You know, he called it the war on criminality, and that this was carried out by killing petty thieves, petty criminals, users, and uh, pushers. You know, and. You know, over those years, uh, there were 1,424 uh, victims of extrajudicial killings. Now, in my experience, uh, re regimes that use extrajudicial killings are generally discreet about that sort of thing. They want to have a certain measure of deniability to distance themselves from actual responsibility for it. But it sounds like both in his time as mayor and also now as president of the Philippines, he openly boasts that this is a, a central part of his of his policies going forward. That 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 seems striking in comparison. Yeah, because uh, there are a lot of people who think it is necessary you know, that if you want to go after criminals, if you want to go after drug addicts who are automatically criminals also, then you have to carry out a campaign of extermination. It's a way of cleansing society. So there's no tolerance for the pace of the judicial system. There's no, there's no sense that due, due process would be in order. It's just a matter of just 
people being being targeted. I, I assume this is mostly lower level people. These aren't drug dealers and kingpins. No, no, no. These are most of them are poor. Most of them are young people. No, and there are the people who like to have a shortcut. You know, yeah. take, it takes a long time to arrest them, and then trial, and then the sentencing and imprisonment. And some of them are able to even. Uh, 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 go out, get out there. So in the less than two years that he's been president, you say there have been nearly 20,000 people killed. Yes. Is it, I can't imagine that that wouldn't involve people who were settling scores against neighbors or, you know, I mean, not, not simply a matter of any great precision with numbers that high. Well, uh, the barangay officials or the village uh, leaders are asked to compile a list of notorious persons, you know, criminals, especially addicts and abusers. Uh, you know. Of course, uh, who would vet whether these are uh, really uh, genuine uh, criminals or not? You know? But uh, the fact that there's no due process, there's no way of uh, really finding out whether they're guilty or uh, innocent. But most of them are often uh, drug-related, you know, that's what they would say, you know. Is it your sense that there's a fair amount of support or buy-in at, at local levels of government in some places for these types of policies? Well, uh, there is a lot of support, but some of them, they cannot do otherwise, you know. They have no choice but to cooperate. With oh, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, the then uh, the mayor or the village said would be accused of coddling with uh, them, you know. So some of the some of the cooperation itself is a product of the same coercive practices and apparatus. Yes, it is. Duterte was elected with thirty nine percent of the vote in yeah. a divided multi multi candidate election. Yeah. Um, how uh, how how do how do you assess his support nationally uh, after two 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 years in office? Is he becoming more popular, less popular? Is his base, who constitutes the base of his supporters nationally? If you just uh, follow the polls, you know, uh, the polls would give him very good uh, ratings in terms of uh, support, but you have to find out uh, you know, the questions that are being uh, asked. You know. For example, if you ask, do you support the war on drugs? Of course, many people say, yeah, we support the war on drugs. You know. But uh, if the question is asked uh, about the killings, you know, majority, 80% would say they're not in favor of the killings. You know. They'd prefer that uh, they're kept alive and they'll go through the whole process. You know. So, uh, but if uh, you know, just uh, base it on, you know, we've been from time to time, you know, his supporters would call for a rally, mass demonstrations in support of him. Those who come are scarce, actually. You know, you don't have the numbers. You know, so you know, it's very difficult to know what is the level of support because they they have a lot of trolls also in social media. Sure. Know? Yeah. And I'm sure that the regime wants to be selective in the opinion polling that it releases and promotes to make it look as though there's a broad popular upswell. Oh yeah, in yeah. Support of this. Yeah. Um, does does it break down in terms of class differentiation? I mean, is he popular with the business community or some of the of the business yeah, associations? He's more popular with 
the upper class, you know. The upper and middle classes, yeah. in some sense? Yeah, than the poor, uh, the, the, the other classes, you okay. know. Because, of course, the target of these killings are the poor, you know. And, you know, some of those in the upper class, you know, of course, have this also less class bias, you know. That, uh, they don't care if the poor are being killed. But among among the middle class and among the intellectuals, there's a, again, uh, that's where the opposition are coming from, you know. Can, can you tell us about the opposition, what the, what the nature of the pushback against Duterte's extrajudicial killings has been in the forms it's taken? Well, in terms of the political class, you know, the politicians, he has a supermajority. You know, and that is understandable because in the Philippines, uh, there's a lot of turncoatism. You know, whoever is in power, then the, they just shift their loyalty, you know, because um, there's no such thing as party loyalty, you know. Uh, the main, uh, the civil society organizations, they're actually not that uh, big, you know, the human rights groups. Uh, it's a church, actually. Mm -hmm. you know, the institutional church that is providing all this uh, pushback or the, the resistance. Uh, lately, also the left, because uh, earlier on, the, there was an alliance between Duterte and the left. You know, but there's been a falling uh, out. My understanding was that Duterte often used an anti-colonial sort of message to insulate himself from challenges from the left. Yeah, and even, also, even, yeah. even while he was carrying yeah, out these Yeah, and also because he had friendship with them, a lot of friends among them. But yeah. uh, he actually admitted uh, recently that he just used them to win in this election, you know, whether it was in Davao and in this national uh, election. His rhetoric was he claimed that he was a leftist, <laughs> that he's a socialist, you know. It's an, it's, it would, it's hard to imagine the degree of impunity that the regime is sort of presenting in carrying out their, their policies, the boasting of the numbers of people just killed on the streets, killed in, killed in the villages, um, without any sense of consequences or reprisals and so on. The president has said that he will pardon people who participate in this, that he will make sure they are not prosecuted. Yeah. And um, what what are the status, what's the status of the other branches of government? You say that the legislature has been has been co-opted. Yes. I know that some legislative <laughs> opponents of his have been targeted. Yeah. Um, has he succeeded in intimidating the judicial branch of course, as well? Yeah, uh, has, except uh, a few of them, and especially the uh, chief justice was a woman. But now these his uh, allies in Congress are, uh, you know, started an impeachment proceeding uh, against uh, her. Majority of those in uh, Supreme Court support him. That's why even the, the about the issue of uh, the burial of a former dictator uh, Marcos, and also the martial law in Mindanao you know, and its extension. With. Uh with the role of the church in providing opposition to this, how how would you characterize it? Is it uh, at the level of street mobilizations? Is it, is it church media? Is it pastors in the pulpits? What how what space exists and what means are available to resist and protest under current circumstances? The primary one is the pastoral letters. 
that uh, the bishops uh, have came out with. No? Uh, so far, there are three uh, pastoral letters, and all of these actually are condemning these uh, killings and asserting that even uh, addicts have rights that are also human beings equal in uh, dignity, and also that the call to stop the killing and start the healing, you know, that they need to be healed rather than to be killed. You know. So it is mainly in the pastoral letters. You know. Some of these pastoral letters, especially the uh, second one, was read in all in the pulpits you know, in, uh, in the, on Sunday. And that has been uh, the role of the bishops, you know, the Catholic Bishops' Conference, even during the time of Marcos. So remember that one of the triggers of the people power against Marcos was the statement coming from the bishops after the elections, you know, claiming that uh, the fraudulence of the elections and uh, saying that Marcos no longer had the moral ground to govern. You know. And that is why that uh, the statements of the bishops have been taken seriously, by, especially those in uh, government. But it's not only the bishops. It's also uh, the Association of Bayerians appears against the statements and uh, from the Council of the Lady of the Philippines. So most of these are statements that are often picked up by the press. So it's it's men and women religious, it's lay organizations, yes. and then trying to make those available through the, through the yeah, mass media yeah. and social media. And not only that, also the street, uh, you know, it's not really... You know, you have processions mm -hmm. and uh, prayer rallies, but you know, these are forms of protest, you know, also, you know, of, uh, against, uh, these are nonviolent uh, forms of resistance against uh, the regime. Public and, liturgy as a form of protest has a, deep, yes, it has is. a deep history. Oh, not yeah, yeah. Not just in the Philippines. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the latest one was in November, and it was much attended, you know. 15 to 20,000 people attended that, you know. So, and, you know, many of the recent uh, protest rallies that are, you know, more, uh, from different sectors, you find uh, priests, nuns, and even seminarians are participating in this. Well, I'm sure that puts members of the, of, of, of the church in a bullseye of sorts, um, making them targets of reprisal from the regime and its, and its allies. Um, what's, been the, what's been the circumstance there? I understand there's been well, threats there's and... There's been some yeah, the latest one was Father Tito Paez, you know, and he was uh, killed. The bishops came out with a statement that he's not just a victim of a judicial case, but also a martyr, you know. Yeah. You know, that, uh, that uh, funeral of Father Tito Paez, it was the Pope sent the Papal Nuncio to attend that, you know, and the Papal Nuncio said, I'm here because the Pope asked me to attend this uh, so that so that the solidarity of the church worldwide would be present, yeah, and not yeah. simply, you know, the struggle being left to the Filipino church by itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, has Duterte been successful in trying to divide the church on these issues um, in terms of whether it's some members of the clergy or the hierarchy sympathetic to him, whether it's laity uh, who support his policies? tuning out the voice of the church? Well, as far as the CBCP is concerned, you know, because it's always that every letter has to be uh, voted on. It has the uh, majority support of the uh, 
of the uh, the bishops, you know. Uh, so you can say that the CBCP, in terms of you know, so far the condemnation of extrajudicial killings and the need to stop the killing, start the healing, this has been a unanimous support among the bishops. But among the clergy, uh, before the election, there are a lot of support for Duterte, especially those priests coming from Mindanao. You know, we're very regionalistic. You know, we tend to support our own. At present, I wouldn't know because I, some of those I, uh, who were for him now have turned against him, you know. So, well, uh, the, the election of the new uh, president of CBCP, uh, Valjes, they're friends. Yes. Uh, yeah. But I don't think it will make any, uh, it can change because the president in the CBCP, he's just a figurehead, you know. It's a decision. So his personal relationship with the president is not likely to, share, to sway it's, the direction yeah. of the bishops' conference. No, overall. it wouldn't. It wouldn't because he has to follow the uh, the decision the consensus of the, uh, and yeah, the majority yeah, of the bishops. Majority. And he already said that uh, you know uh, re recently said that uh, you know I uh, I do not have a bias against him, but at the same time doesn't mean that I fully support him. You know, although he would say that uh, you know we'd like to pursue a more uh, more dialogue uh, with him. You know. um, the regime has been going after the press and the mass mass media. Yeah. Um, they've just closed down or re revoked a license for a, a major news Ruckler, out yeah. a news outlet. Can you talk about what what the strategy seems to be there? Well, they're looking for technical technicalities here. Ruckler, because we have a law that uh, you know it has to be owned majority owned by the. Filipinos, so 60 percent. You know. So Rappler, uh, they ask for investors. You know. There's an arrangement that investors, especially foreigners, do not have control. You know. So is oh, this, so is this, this, a, owner, is this yeah. a, a radio station? Is this a? It's an internet uh, social media. It's a social media news outlet. News outlet, but it's very influential. You know, and so they have uh, made use of that to go after. Uh, Rappler, although lawyers would say, you know, that, uh, you know, there's no really a real basis for their uh, ruling because uh, those uh, investors are not, uh, they don't have uh, controlling uh, stocks, you know. So, would you anticipate this would have a chilling effect on other journalistic yeah. enterprises and they're being willing to critique the regime or report truth truthfully on on developments? Yeah, it will uh, because even uh, there's a threat yeah, because other news agencies like uh, critical against them, like ABS-CBN, you know, there are, so there are similar arrangements you know, with other uh, uh, foreign uh, investors. You know, that's why the, this is very important among those in the media, you know, the standby uh, rappler, because they're really, you know, the, the president is really mad against uh, and, and so for those entities that don't tow his line, there are yeah. institutional levers and pressure that can yeah. be brought to bear yeah. against them if they don't if, if they don't take Yeah, even the recent line. one, you know, the uh, cyber crime, you know. And, you know, uh, that, uh, there was a allegation by a Rappler that happened in uh, 2012, which this cyber law hasn't been passed yet. So there's... You know, retro, yeah. it's retroactive, but they're not supposed to do that. But you know, that uh, you know, looking for these things, you know. So. Now you're a veteran of the people power struggle. You 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 
you fought against the Marcos regi regime. You spent time in prison as one of the enemies of the regime. Um, at this early point, how do you compare these two eras in terms of the severity of the crisis, the, you know, the, the prospects for renewal or mobilization to, to counteract it? How do, you, how do you compare these two very different eras? You know, um, the last two years has been more bloody than, you know, the time of uh, martial law. Uh, actually, the numbers now, uh, the bodies have piled up, is much more more than uh, what has happened over the years, you know, from 1972 to 1986. You know, it's uh, double the uh, number of those who were, uh, we call it salvaging uh, before. Uh, and that is why that uh, this, even if he has not declared martial law, but actually, he doesn't need to declare martial law because he controls uh, everything. He has all but, the benefits of martial law without yeah. the, the need for a formal declaration. Yeah. Of course, he has uh, declared martial law in Mindanao. You know? Right. And of course, if he extends it nationwide, it's the same because uh, they're using uh, threats, you know, the threat of rebellion, the threat of ISIS, the threat of this. You know? And they say it's not just Mindanao, but the whole Philippines. But uh, he doesn't even need to declare that because he controls uh, everything. But it's much more bloody and much more brutal you know, than even the dictator Marcos. That would surprise many people because yeah. of the reputation that Marcos had for not, for not taking, you know, for not taking opposition lightly. But yet, as you say, Duterte's killed so many more people in such a shorter period of time yeah, yeah. that it's really remarkable to lay them side by side that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, Duterte's not an isolated phenomenon in in some respects. I think. Tell me what you think. You you look around the world for people being elected who would have been considered unacceptable in years past for one reason or an, another. I think one. I think it would be a mistake to look at the election of President Duterte as an accident or a, you know something that would be unexpected. When perhaps maybe it's an extension of kind of the the failures of the political class previously. Um, the, cli the clientelism, the corruption within government after, even after the ouster of Marcos, regime after regime, um, almost made possible someone like Duterte. And I'm, I'm not sure if that resonates with your own reading of things. But. Well, according uh, to some analysts, the trend of populism you know, worldwide, you know, people are uh, exasperated with what has been happening with the ruling class, looking for a strong man a messiah figure that can solve all these uh, problems, someone who is outside the political uh, class. And of course, uh, with this populist tendency, you have individuals, you know, who present themselves as messiah, who can, uh, you have a strong will, you know, and can be author. And of course, uh, it's uh, linked with authoritarianism also, you know, the exercise of uh, just power, but brute force, you know. And part of a, and a concomitant economic vision as well. Um, and I think that's one of the things that comparatively stands out is that the type of popular strongman coming in from the outside, not wanting to be restrained by the rules of procedure and so on, is oftentimes tied with an economic 
strategy that makes things worse for the majority, that make, that make for greater economic inequality, um, such that you know, the discontent has to be contained, and what better way to do it than to say that it's being done in the interest of security or law and order or, or national or national sovereignty. Yeah, absolutely. That would be uh, their reasoning, you know. Of course, the thirty came with a battle cry, change, you know. And of course, people had their own understanding of what changed, you know. especially uh, against uh, crime and against corruption. That was always his battle cry, you know, against crime, against corruption, against poverty, you know. But I don't think that uh, he's able to, you know, there's so much expectation but after you know, just a matter of less than two years, people have realized that they've been had. You know. His term expires. Twenty twenty two. And, and um, if you put your prognosticator hat on, what do you anticipate the years between now and then uh, prov providing? What's likely to unfold? Well, if the trend continues and he promised that the killings will continue that uh, we could have over 70,000 victims of extrajudicial killings. There's going to be a lot of instability in our society because I believe that there's a social self-correcting mechanism. There's a point where people cannot take it anymore. I don't know what could happen, you know. But uh, I don't think that uh, you know there's a point where people will lose their patience, and I hope it's not going to be violent. You know, of course there are so many you cannot uh, predict what could happen. You know, we never expected that uh, EDSA would happen. Yeah, and the people power were able to uh, oust a dictator without blood. Yeah. You know? and I hope that that's uh, that. Uh, Nothing violent is going to happen, but uh, well, uh, we don't know what's. But, but the health is also a big question and X factor. You know, he's old. Yes. A sick old man. He's seventy-one. Yeah, but uh, not that the age, but uh, a lot of uh, uh, issues with his health. You know, he's been taking fentanyl. <laughs> you know, that's a. Uh, it's a popular op 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 opioid drug. Yeah, to kill very, uh, to, very to kill the pain. You yeah. know, and uh, so we wouldn't. Uh, know what could happen, you know. but uh, I hope there's no military coup, you know, because I don't think he has the full support of the military, you know. Uh, so anything can happen, you know, but I don't, I, I just hope he will not be able to finish the term because it's going to be very, very bad for our country. You know? What do you anticipate the church's role to be evolving going forward? Do you, do you see signs of greater willingness to sort of build a, build an alternative Way to understand this to su support people in the civil in, in civil society who are being targeted by the regime. Do you? Well, the church has always been working hand in hand with civil society. You know. That's why that I'm also part of the network against killings. It's uh, actually a civil society group, but uh, a lot of church people involved uh, in uh, that. You know, so there's always a link, an intimate link between church people and civil society organizations and. Oftentimes, you know, they, uh, we will collaborate, you know. And of course, the church will always stand up, you know, especially to speak out. You know, it, it cannot be silent. You know. It has hardly found its voice. It has always speak out. There's no way that it was going to be. Re it's going to retreat. You no, know. 
well, that's going to heighten the tension, you know. Uh, of course, uh, with President, uh, another a new president who is a friend, uh, it, uh, <laughs> we don't know what could happen, you know. For people who wanted to keep current on information in the Philippines with regard to human rights, the death squads, and so on, what, what sources of information would you recommend people consult um, to be able to get a more adequate picture of what's going on at the local level or outside of the public relations campaigns of the government? Actually, uh, the most reliable is the one coming from international groups, you know, uh, that uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, you know. They have a greater uh, picture, actually, you know. Of course, the Commission of Human Rights, you know. Uh, we work hand-in-hand uh, hand with them, you know. But uh, they're the ones that, are, that uh, you, you can rely on. Reuters doing a lot of investigative journalism uh, there, you know. So the information is still available if people are willing to work hard enough to, to, to access it. Oh, yes, at yes. This point. Yeah. Well, that's a good sign. And what we're doing now is we don't rely just on the numbers, you know, statistics. We're compiling you know, case studies, uh, you know, reports and everything, you know, the details what happened to these people. They're not just numbers or statistics, but these are people. Who are they? How old were they? What they're, you know. Uh, that this would seem to be important to humanize <coughs> humanize the victims. To oh, yes, tell their, yes. Tell their stories. And yeah, yeah. These are someone's children and someone's parents. Yeah, yeah. Not simply people who can be discarded, but that seems to be the regime's way of calculating these things. Yeah, yeah. Um... You mentioned before that you're you're hopeful that the church will continue to to stay the stay the course in the Philippines. It has a it has a proud history in the last generation of of being able to do such a, such a thing. In other parts of the world, where extrajudicial killings were rampant, sometimes the church took a more uh, a more cautious role, and that in hindsight probably looks ill advised. What sorts of signs of hope do you see moving forward? Um, these are these are dark times, um, and they're not going to immediately improve. Where do you where do you look for encouraging signs or hopeful signs? Well, first is the growth of resistance coming from civil society, you know, from artists, you know, uh, social media even. You know, you look at the bef before it was the trolls that dominated the social media. Now there's a shift. You know, you look at the. So it's, so, it's, so it's not simply trolls and paid and paid publicists trying to sort of defend the regime and yeah, dom yeah. dominate the conversation. Yeah, now it's against. Uh, it's uh, it's now in favor of those. The resistance is growing in social media now, you know, compared before. So you find this resistance growing in all parts of society, you know, schools. So the church is part of that, and I think the church uh, backing is important, and that. Uh, speaks out and because it speaks out it gives courage to uh, others to come out you know and you know I'm, I'm i'm amazed because it took a very long long time during martial law you know for decisions to build up but now in less than two years i see a lot of signs of resistance that are rapidly uh, growing well those are encouraging signs indeed yeah father many thanks and best of luck in your important work the philippines is on the cutting edge of so many important things in the church and in the and in the the world, and we we hope for we hope for better days for everyone soon. Yeah, and I'll be asking for prayers for our 
country that will be delivered from evil. Very good. Thank you very much. Welcome, Mike. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the so-called Global South. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Greg Barker, Anna Gallen, Francis Salino, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities, Look for the Center for World Catholicism on the web, Facebook, or Twitter.